Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, why the state is going to court against the Air Force to get it to clean up toxic chemicals around two military bases. In New Mexico, to our knowledge, as I, as I know right now, the biggest contamination is caused by the U.S. Air Force and we are working to remedy that situation. Plus, we're one-on-one -on -one with the Secretary of New Mexico's Indian Affairs Department. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Lynn Trujillo is a member of the Sandia Pueblo and also pushing for native rights as head of Indian Affairs for the state of New Mexico. We talk about the missing and murdered indigenous women's crisis as well as tribal priorities for the state. The Cannabis Legalization Task Force continues its roadshow regarding recreational legalization. A continuing hangup is protecting medical marijuana. The line will update all things cannabis. Professional soccer is arguably the hottest sport in the city. Now the University of New Mexico is bringing soccer back, sort of. We'll explain. We start with First Amendment free speech on Santa Fe's plaza while exercising the Second Amendment right to have a gun on your hip. There's a man who's been walking around the Santa Fe Plaza with, as I said, a gun on his hip, allegedly harassing minority vendors and others he comes across. Mayor Alan Weber's office has received many complaints and comments, and Leah Cantor, the Santa Fe reporter, writes that the mayor says, quote, the city is doing everything in its power to protect public safety while not infringing on the constitutional rights of individuals to express free speech or bear arms, end quote. Here to discuss this issue and others, I'm joined at the table by former state representative and line regular Daniel Foley. Adrian Carver's here. He's executive director of Equality New Mexico. Familiar face, we're always glad to see. Former state senator Seat Aditi Feldman is with us. And another former state senator, Diane Snyder. Always good to have you here as well, Diane. Now, welcome to all. Adrian, let me read something to you. State law allows for open carry. We know this. So there's nothing to be done on the Second Amendment-wise, but let's put some context here. I want to read something to you here. Think back to Santa Fe's Entrada a couple years ago, right? When the police directed protesters to a, a designated, quote, free speech zones, and they were waving signs, this man has a gun, right? And he's reportedly threatening people, and, you know, shouldn't they deal with this guy in the same way? Do you see my question here? Is there a protected zone we could establish here at the Santa Fe Plaza and have this? Why do protesters at Entrada have to be squirreled away somewhere, but this man's free speech can go all over the place? What's, what's the difference here? Look, uh, so I've, I've encountered this, this person at uh, Santa Fe. Oh, Park, you have? And I, oh, no you know, I, when, I, when I saw the situation, I was worried about my employees that were there um, working to get the word out about the, uh, equality in New Mexico and the work that we do. Right. Um, and this man is walking around with a gun, uh, strapped to the side of his his belt, um, you know, wearing his Trump, uh, his his red hat, and um, that's terrorism. It's it is uh, it, it in the world that we live in today. Mm -hmm. You know, this guy is a mascot for uh, the hate and the rhetoric that the Trump administration is pushing out all across the the country. Um, you know, there's been a, an uptick in hate crimes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a recent poll that said 25% of people are changing their habits when they're in public because of the threat of mass shootings. Um, and, and this is a guy that's walking around 
um, a pride celebration, a place that is all about diversity and inclusion and tolerance, mm -hmm. um, yelling at people who have experienced some of the most and most harmful discrimination that they, they have just because of who they are. Mm -hmm. um, Did you file a complaint about this? I'm curious. Did you talk to any authorities about no, this? No, there was. Uh, we didn't have an a, a, an interaction, but you know, I was watching him. You know, going from booth to booth, um, wow. harassing people, and you know, in this world that we live in, you know, this guy, he's 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 racist. He's a mascot for what's happening on the national level. He's emboldened mm -hmm. by these these people, white nationalists, on that are running our country, and you know, I. I yeah, I, let me kind of bring it back local. I, I hear your point. I hear your point. Part of, it's part of a bigger thing that's going on around here, but uh, Senator Snyder, the idea that again, we're butting up different kinds of freedoms here: the freedom to bear arms, the freedom to protect oneself, certainly. <coughs> But don't these folks have freedom, these vendors, from being harassed? Where, where does this middle that's, part... That's not the law, Gene. The mm -hmm. law says, gives the first two freedoms, credibility and legitimacy. Okay. There is no law that says you can't harass somebody, except when you go into the designated race, religion, sex, and... Uh, uh, has he not crossed that line? No, by he hasn't. By asking people for their papers, by no. threatening to shoot people, questioning well, their questions of origin, the countries of origin? No, that is his free speech to ask. Is it rude? Is it frightening? Is it all of those things? Mm -hmm. Yes, but he hasn't broken the law. He, and as long as he doesn't, right. then he should be allowed. Now, I don't mind the idea. I kind of like the idea of the free speech zone. Sure. If we made that a consistent policy everywhere. Mm -hmm. But he's not broken the law. Mm -hmm. And nobody has filed a complaint. You I believe, have to I have believe there, not that it's huge, it's not, we're not talking felonies here, but there were a couple of misdemeanors he has clearly broken. Right, but misdemeanors are He has clearly broken. But you know. misdemeanors are one thing. But, but, but I hear you, but we're, 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 I, I hear that side of the argument, I will swing to a senator over here, this idea that this man has done nothing yet. Where does fear and intimidation fit into this equation? That, that can't be nothing in this world, intimidation, right? Intimidation, mean, mm -hmm. and especially when you're packing a gun, which is perfectly legal. Sure. Is, uh, is not covered under free speech. It is not legal to cry fire in a crowded theater. Mm -hmm. And this man in this particular climate is, um, is uh, sounding the alarm. And I, I think that, you know, we've, we have had this mantra after every, every uh, terrorist attacks, you know, you see something, say something. Mm. So people are obliged to file a complaint mm -hmm. against this person mm -hmm. if they haven't done it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're, we're now, like, detaining people because they might shoot up a school. Right. Uh, here's a man actually threatening people right. on in a public space. Right. And um, he, he, he is not protected, I don't believe. But, uh, you know, and isn't this a red flag warning? Isn't that was this my a next case question. for right. a red flag warning? Mm -hmm. I mean, can I, can I swing that to Dan? May yeah. I, may I, uh, just to get him in here, is this enough of a red flag warning for you? When you got this man has been caught on videotape threatening one of the most beloved vendors on Santa Fe Plaza that mess with me and I'll shoot you. Shouldn't that be enough to have some kind of action of some part? I'm not saying you got to drag the guy in in chains, but is that enough to have Santa Fe Police Department say, hey, you know? So why haven't they? I don't know. 
That's the question for them. You. I don't know. Well, yeah. I'm not the Santa Fe Police Department, Jim. Okay. I mean, you, in order in order to have a threat, that's fine. In order to have a threat, in order to have a legal, credible threat, you have to have the threat, and you have to have the ability to carry out the threat. Clearly, him being there saying he's going to kill somebody with mm-hmm. a gun on his hip, he has the ability to carry out a threat. Something should be done about that. Right. I think when we start saying, look, he's walking around in a Trump shirt and a Trump hat, and you know, just the fact that he's got the hat and the fact that he's got a gun on his hip, I mean, that's, I think that's where the problem occurs. This guy clearly has no business threatening people. I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. I don't care what side you are. I, I mean, I'm just telling you right now, guy gets in my face, he's getting knocked out. Mm-hmm. Period. End of story. Mm-hmm. I mean, gets in my face, wants to tell me something, yep. I'd knock him out. Yep. If he went after my wife or kids, I'd knock him out. All right? Even if but, he had but, a gun. Even if he had a gun, I'd knock his ass out. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but at the same time, we have all this outrage against this guy, and we've got all these other organizations in this state and in this country that are the Antifa guys, the people that are dragging people out of buses, beating people, okay. spitting I on them. Back local. Well, no, I know you, I know you want to bring it back local, but, but, gonna, but, this, but, but, but Gene, this is, on, but Antifa's in Santa Fe. Uh, they've, been in, they've been up there as well. They've been in Albuquerque as well, Gene. I hear you. So if you're gonna, all I'm saying is if you're yeah. going to have this righteous indignation against this guy, which is wrong, which I'm angry about, why are we not having the same righteous indignation about the other guys? Okay. When, when someone would, uh, uh, fine. Uh, Diane, let me, go, let me get back to you on that. Uh-huh. Let me, where's the middle ground here? Is there a possibility? I mean, because otherwise we could have a lot of people walking around strapped at the hip if we wanted to. We you can. People That's the law. On the plaza. Oh, everyone's hawking each other. Everyone's kind of, you know, that could easily escalate to that point here on Santa Fe. It could. Mm-hmm. But, but then you get into the dis- another discussion, mm-hmm. and it's, how much of our rights are we going to give up to protect ourselves? Right. That is a, that's a totally different <clears throat> discussion. And it, it's just like uh, the uh, TSA mm-hmm. and, and getting on and how much we are, are reviewed sure. and how much we, sure. is that fair, is that right? right? For all of us who are non-threatening, right. care, you know, I, I, I hear you guys with these broad you, but, examples. Right, but, We're talking but, about one man on Santa Fe Plaza. I know, okay, but, but Gee, if you want to talk about the one man on Santa Fe Plaza, you know. he's had multiple interactions, which I think I've been very clear from the start of this. I'm not endorsing what this sure, guy does, okay? Sure. But on the same note, what do you want to do, Gene? There's been multiple interactions with this guy. He has not pulled the gun at anybody. Yes. He, Right. Yeah. So, 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 Gene. I mean, th- that's an unbelievable statement by you. He hasn't done it yet. Well, that person walking down the street hasn't committed a crime yet. That well, person doing this hasn't committed this no, no. yet. No, I mean, no, we have rules that are in place. Back to what is the purpose of the red flag y- yeah. laws? Yeah. Guys. Can I come? What do you, what what do you mean? Is the per- okay. So, the, the police there in Santa Fe. There has to be a, 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 a percentage of yet. You have to so think clearly. About it. So either you got two choices. Either the mayor of Santa Fe. The last time I checked, is no bastion of conservatism. Maybe I'm wrong. The police department in Santa Fe, clearly this is not news to them. Right. So clearly somebody has raised a question. Somebody has looked into this guy. This guy clearly doesn't pose a threat according to the police mm-hmm. or the mayor, because I can assure you a guy walking around in a Trump hat and a Trump shirt and a gun threatening people in Santa Fe Plaza, if the mayor of Santa Fe could hammer that guy, if the progressive Democrats could arrest that guy, they wouldn't admit it. No, they, have, they have respect for <coughs> individual <coughs> rights as well. You do it in 20 um, seconds. And my, my point is the red... Uh, Back to the red flag warning. We are detaining people now who threaten to shoot up schools, uh, young people and others. So um, the red flag warning also is to try to get these people some help. Mm -hmm. If they are mentally ill, Mm -hmm. they need some help. Uh, Usually in a red flag uh, warning, it's the family that sounds the alarm. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder, what about the family of this guy? Is this, have they 
been contacted? Are they, is this, if this is a typical street person who's been out there harassing parades. And, I just find it hard to believe that the people haven't looked into this guy yet. They have. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they so have. So you're you just know. saying that they've looked into it. Mm-hmm. Whatever the result is, the result is, but you want them to do more. The counties and municipalities are hamstrung. They, <clears throat> they aren't allowed to uh, pass and enact laws that give them more freedom. Now, one thing I will add is Mayor Weber has also said he wants to talk to the governor's office about changing some of these gun laws and making them more in local control. That's interesting. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when that that gets uh, going. So, have to stop that there. After a quick break, we're talking native priorities here in New Mexico. Whether he's likable or not, doesn't really matter. What's happening is the, that the fraud, waste, and abuse have eroded the trust of students, of families, of faculty, of graduate students. New Mexico has more than 200,000 Native Americans, 23 tribes, and a significant urban population. Each tribe is a sovereign nation that works on local, state, and federal levels. Their leaders strive to maintain culture and language while making decisions for the betterment of tribal citizens. The state has an agency, Indian Affairs, to support tribes. In January, Governor Lujan Grisham appointed Lynn Trujillo from San Diego Pueblo to serve as department secretary. She brings more than two decades of experience working with native communities to the job. NMIF correspondent Antonia Gonzalez sits down with Trujillo to talk about tribal priorities. You've been in this new position now for, what, the last six months or so? About six months, okay. yes. <laughs> and you've been traveling around the state, meeting with Native people. What's the number one issue you're hearing from the Native community that they'd like you and the state to work on? Well, there are a lot of issues that, um, that our tribal, 23 tribal nations here in New Mexico and Indian people would like us to work on. So I hear a, about a whole host of issues. I think in the forefront has been um, meeting the needs of tribal communities in relation to um, tribal infrastructure or their projects that um, really have been stalled for the past couple of years, such as um, wellness centers, health, city, health centers, roads, um, critical projects like water and wastewater, um, and power line extensions. So um, I hear a lot about those needs. There are other issues that are um, important to our native people here in New Mexico, such as the Missing and Murdered Indigenous um, Women's um, Initiative, um, and th- the epidemic really that's taking place here across the nation, but in, in our state. And um, what specifically is the state um, doing to address Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls? So this past legislative session, there was a bill that was introduced and signed into law by Governor Lujan Grisham, um, which actually creates a task force um, of which the, the Indian Affairs Department um, serves as the, to convene the task force. I will serve as the chair for the task force. We'll also be working with other stakeholders, um, the Department of Public, um, Public Safety, as well as um, other members from tribal communities and nonprofit organizations. Um, the, the goal of the task force is to study uh, the challenges that might exist where there's data gaps, also bring um, state partners together with tribal law enforcement and our federal agencies as well. 
And another issue that's a priority for New Mexico, which includes tribes, is energy and developing energy for the entire state and also looking at different ways, renewable as well. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about what it means for tribal communities when it comes to energy? Sure. I think that, um, you know, this past session, the Energy Transition Act was um, signed into law through the leadership of our legislators and Governor Lujan Grisham. And tribal communities really have an opportunity to, um, you know, to, um, to take hold of their energy sovereignty. And so as a department, we're working very closely um, with our tribal communities to um, ask them what is important for them in terms of renewable energy. Um, in relation to the Energy Transition Act, our department has um, been reaching out to the Navajo Nation and Hickory Apache Nation, in particular the 29 um, chapters that are in the affected area of the San Juan um, plant closing uh, to um, talk with them about the ETA, but also to hear from them about what their concerns are related to that, to the closure, what they might look for for workforce development and training, um, as well as economic development and um, their own energy sovereignty. And can you talk a little bit more about what they're, you know, wanting when the closure is coming up? What are some of the things you're hearing from community members and needs of assistance, I guess? So we're in the really early stages. Um, you know, the, the first um, big meeting is scheduled for to occur in September. Um, the department has decided to do more in terms of outreach, so we're, we're just now in the early stages of reaching out and um, setting up those meetings. We've sent letters out to the 29 affected chapters um, requesting time on their meeting agendas um, for their chapter house meetings uh, to present um, what's happening around the ETA, but also to hear from them what their concerns are, um, how they would like to see these funds um, spent uh, and then get more input from them um, to better understand the needs of the community and also um, what, they, what, they, what they envision for themselves in terms of renewable energy in their own community. So it's really early. Um, we have a lot of work to do, but we're very excited for that work. Another issue that goes along with energy is how do we balance and how do tribal communities balance, you know, development and protecting the environment and sacred sites that are really important to them. Um, can you talk a little bit about Chaco Canyon and the state's efforts um, along with maybe some of the U.S. lawmakers and grassroots efforts and tribes to protect Chaco Canyon? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's been a long history, uh, unfortunately, of um, energy exploitation coming at the um, sacrifice to tribal communities. Um, we have a new administration um, through our governor, Luhan Grisham, and our state land commissioner. I mean, really, I think that we are seeing that there's the opportunity to both have um, energy, um, you know, sustainable energy in our state, um, as well as respecting um, sacred sites such as Chaco and um, preserving the landscapes that are important to our indigenous people here in New Mexico. And let's talk a little bit about education. Students, if they're not already in school, <laughs> they're preparing to go back to school. And education in New Mexico 
Um, we have this big case, the Yazi case, which um, included Native students mm -hmm. and helping Native students better prepare um, for not only, you know, education um, now, but into the future. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the state's work in that? Sure. So the Indian Affairs Department has been partnering with the governor's office as well as the, um, P the PED. Um, I've been working with um, Interim Secretary um, Bob Baroff now to do um, outreach to tribal communities. Um, we've met with a number of tribal leaders to just talk about um, meeting the educational needs of their Native students in the public school systems. And um, last week or the week before, I actually was um, fortunate to be invited to and attend an education summit that was held at uh, Santa Ana um, related to issues of um, public education and really talking with tribal officials, educators, parents about um, what they would like to see in response to the Yazzie Martinez decision. Um, and I was really excited um, to be able to participate um, in those in the summit to learn more from um, our tribes and communities about the needs um, of our Native American students. And when it comes to education in New Mexico, how can improving it for Native students include more math and science? Well, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, it starts with um, the teachers in the classroom, and I really um, want to thank and value the teachers that are there. Um, but, you know, I was watching a documentary actually on PBS um, and it was about, it followed a number of students who were um, researching um, science um, related topic areas and um, it made me think like, man, if I, you know, I wish I, I had had that opportunity. Um, and I think that, you know, presenting those opportunities to um, children in school, um, um, empowering them to open their minds that they're capable of studying um, science and math, um, and I think um, getting away from these feelings of I'm not good enough or, um, or especially if I'm a girl, <laughs> like science and math is not for me. Um, and I think, you know, being able to have more opportunities encouraging um, students to explore those areas um, is something that we, we can do. And I think all of us play a part in that. I mean, many people in, um, many Native people have various talents, right? And we have, we're very, I think, blessed to live in a, a state where we have um, Native people who are talented in terms of their art um, and, and our culture, but I think that there are so many other Native people out there who are contributing in different ways, and we have incredible scientists and mathematicians, and I think by having more of those mentors and examples out there, um, that's one way that we can empower our young people to see that they have other pathways. And another top priority for the state is the upcoming U.S. Census and how that's going to impact not only all New Mexicans, but it's really important for Indian country. There are a number of tribal leaders who are out there encouraging um, early information, education, and advocacy for the census for tribal members to take part in. Can you talk a little bit about the census? 
Yes, so the Indian Affairs Department, along with other departments, are a part of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's Complete Count Committee. There's a statewide committee. There are a number of other stakeholders that are involved in this initiative. As you stated, um, it's critically important. Um, it's important for tribal communities um, for two reasons, for funding that we receive, um, but also for representation. And um, we, you know, as a department, we're, we're working with our partners to um, convene a, a tribal um, complete count committee so that we can ensure that um, we are serving as a hub to coordinate efforts, um, whether it be um, messaging around census or funding opportunities. We really see our role as a department to help um, the Pueblos and Apaches in the Navajo Nation um, where we can to ensure that our Native communities are um, completely counted. As you know, Native communities are some of the hardest to count um, areas in our state and we really need to ensure that every, everyone's counted so that we get those dollars that are going to be coming into the state and flowing to the tribes as well. I uh, uh, recently spoke with uh, Congresswoman uh, Deb Holland, who is one of two first Native American mm -hmm. women in Congress, just about Native women being in leadership roles and why that it's important to have Native women as leaders. And so what is your thought on being in such a position and seeing other Native women in these leadership roles? Um, I, I, um, I'm really honored to serve in this position every single day. This is probably one of the best things I've done in my life. And to um, get up every day knowing that I get to be of service to our tribal communities and to our people here um, is a huge blessing. And to be able to work alongside people such as um, Congresswoman Holland, um, Deb, who's a, a good friend of mine, we worked on the campaign trail together, um, is inspiring. Um, I hope that we um, inspire other women to um, you know, envision themselves in these roles. Uh, I would have never foreseen myself in this position, but I'm here now and I know that all my life experiences um, in terms of my career, but also who I am as a Pueblo woman has prepared me for this and um, I'm excited. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Great, thank you. Showing up in Clovis, showing up in um, Alamogordo and talking to the community, discussing risk, helping with sampling, installing um, filters, those are the things we really need help on now because as I've said many times, the Air Force isn't stepping up to do those things. Well, UNM Athletics is back in the news. Of course, former athletic director Paul Krebs has been indicted on seven felony counts related to that golf trip to Scotland for boosters. That ahead of what would have been a public hearing on the same matter. But earlier this week, the Daily Lobo wrote about President Garnett Stokes taking $300,000 of discretionary money to make men's soccer and men's and women's skiing into club sports. We'll explain that in a second. You'll remember those programs were cut after both gender equality and financial problems at UNM Athletics and restoring those sports may have, as they say, good optics, Daniel, but they're club sports. They're not NCAA sanctioned. They don't have scholarships. They don't have paid coaching. 
What's the point here? I don't get what's going on. What, why, why is UNM? I just, think it's a, I just think it's another way for UNM to throw a bone and think they're above the fray. I mean, uh, clearly the two most successful programs, you look at what's happening with the United team. I mean, there was, I mean, UNM soccer was ranked nationally. Men's soccer was ranked nationally. Yep. Ski teams won national championships. Mm-hmm. Um, they attracted people from all over the state and the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we're going to give them a club sport status. And now we announced that the football team is staying in hotels again nice. the night before the football game. I forgot about I mean, that. hopefully they'll win two games this year, three games this year. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's bizarre world yep. at the end of the day. And I think that, you know, the people should be outraged. And I think, you know, it's to me, this is almost like, you know, separate but equal. Hey, we're not going to have sports, but you guys can go play over there and do what you want to do. And, and we'll give you a little, we'll put you in the Daily Lobo every once in a while. Right, right. 300000 300, Didi. It's amazing. That's a lot of money. But that's ostensibly for one year. Yeah, what happens it doesn't in year seem two, to be three or four? Right. It doesn't seem to be. This is a solution to a PR problem. Uh, that's what I think it is. <laughs> and, um, you know, ultimately, I guess they're going to go with a tin cup and beg to the ASUNM each year uh, for funding. Right. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll see how far they Which get. It'll never be enough either. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but it also means someone else is going to get cut in order for them to get $300,000. That's right again. The ski team. I mean, I have to imagine, we're talking in the, in the production offices a little bit earlier. If you are that good that you can potentially get a scholarship to a ski team, a university, you're not coming to UNM. You're going where there are, you know, ski mountains and, you know, People are looking for these types of talents and all that kind of thing. Why the ski team? Why, why do this? Uh, look, I, I think that funding of sports and universities, is, it's, it's such a convoluted issue. My mind automatically goes to, you know, the like, first-generation college students like myself that mm-hmm. are just trying to make it in this giant system. And, you know, there's always been a conflict between funding mm-hmm. a football program over academics. And, you know, that graduate students are talking about unionizing on UNM campus right now because of, you know, they're, they're fighting for the dignity of the work that they do. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think it comes down to what we prioritize. Um, do we prioritize a quality education? Do we prioritize the college experience? Do we prioritize generating revenue that helps support all of those other things? And so, I don't know, we, we just need to take a look at what universities are for, um, who they're working for, who they're not working for, and we should mm-hmm. probably invest more money in who they're not working for. Good point there. Senator, look, I mentioned uh, Paul Krebs. Let's get right to that, shall yes. we? I want to read you, reach back a, a quote from then uh, University President Chalky Abdallah, who said, Mr. Krebs displayed, quote, outstanding leadership of UNM athletics. His tenure will go down as the most productive and successful in school history. And I'm, I'm just curious, oh, this seemed to be, I don't want to make an accusation here, but it almost seemed like Mr. Krebs was protected at the end of it all. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, this thing was blowing up, and you still had language like this out there from the university. It was a very strange time, wasn't it? It was a strange yeah. time, but um, I had the opportunity to uh, meet Mr. Krebs a number of different times. Mm-hmm. Extremely personable person, mm-hmm. well-liked, mm-hmm. appeared to be doing a very good job at, mm-hmm. at the athletic department. So I think nobody wanted him to be mm-hmm. guilty mm-hmm. Of, of, and certainly not That's fair. Yep. these kinds of, of crimes that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think that a couple points that came to mind for me mm-hmm. is, uh, would there have been the same kind of hoopla if he had taken these potential donors to Pebble Beach. Still in the United States, but let me tell you, it would have cost about the same amount of money. That's right. Uh, So 
because donors expect perks. Right. And right. potential donors, if you're wooing somebody for big dollars, mm -hmm. then you have to go out of your way a little bit. Mm -hmm. We need to perhaps educate our donors that we're not the University of Alabama. We're not Clemson. Right. We're not o OU. Yeah. We're, we're the university. Yeah, but I, th I think the problem also, though, is that going out and trying to raise money is one thing. When you find out that your entire family went on the trip, your father-in-law went on the trip, yeah. you're sending out emails that say, look, the other thing is, is that, you know, everybody wants to blame Paul Krebs, which he clearly is at fault for this. Mm -hmm. Where are the Board of Regents? Mm -hmm. The guy never made budget. Mm -hmm. Never right. made budget. Yeah, Big league. And you're, like it wasn't even Yeah, close. it wasn't like, hey, right. it's a $3 million yeah. budget and he had $2.9 million. Right. The guy was way off and clearly the president that was going out read a statement that was written by Paul Krebs and his staff. And, you know, it begs the question is who's guarding the hen house, right? right? We have a Board of Regents that's supposed to be looking over this stuff. Clearly failed during this time. Right. What, I mean, I don't know how you can be getting a budget report, have a finance committee, have people giving you the budget and say, hey, look, we're going to be millions of dollars in the hole. Right. We're okay. Keep That's going. Right. We're okay. Keep going. We're okay. Keep it's going. Amazing the power they right. Or, or you can. Yeah. But, you know, but here's the thing: you don't have this. to be. You don't it's have amazing. to be a financial expert. Mm -hmm. We've all been in the legislature. We've all been in businesses, done things. Mm -hmm. When someone comes to me the first time and sets a budget, I'm going to rely on you, Gene. You set the budget. Mm -hmm. Next year, when you were way off one way or the other, my questions. I may not be a budget expert. I'm going to be like, Gene, right. you set the budget at a million. You made four. That's right. Why are we not raising it to four? Right. Or you set it at four and you made one. Maybe we should dial it down a little bit. It seemed like the athletic department had carte blanche no to walk wrong. in and say our budget no is wrong. here yeah. and you know That's we right. didn't reach it but we're going to go ahead and we're going to say we're going to sell four I mean it didn't take a rock science to say yeah. in order for you to make budget you got to fill the stadium for football every game and you're averaging 4,000 people a game mm -hmm. how are you going to do that what's That's your right. plan when, right. whether he's likable or not um, doesn't really matter what's happening is the that the fraud waste and abuse have eroded the trust of students of families of faculty of graduate students um, in mm -hmm. our university system as a whole, and I think, Dan, you make a good point that um, a lot of those regents were political appointees of uh, uh, Governor Martinez, and, um, you know, there have been a lot of important and, I think, uh, important conversations and proposals at the legislature to do regent reform That's right. um, because our university system is broken, and it starts with the people so remember, who are guarding. So remember, there, good last yep. note right there. Sorry, I didn't out of time. We'll have to hold it there. The group will be back one more time after the break. We look at the state's response to chemicals used by the military that have seeped into groundwater around military bases here in New Mexico. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to clean up. I hope they get it cleaned up. I hope we're not last mm -hmm. to the table because this is this is an unbelievable amount of tax revenue. It's here, and we're either going to embrace it on the legal side and control it, or try to control it, or we're going to be completely in the black market. New Mexico Environment Department Secretary James Kenney has been at his state job since the beginning of the year, but before that, he worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for 20 years. He was educated as an engineer, study that served him well as he deals with PFAS, which are toxic man-made chemicals found in groundwater, surface water, and biological systems near Holloman and Cannon Air Force bases. NMIF environmental correspondent Laura Paskus spoke with Mr. Kenny about the challenge this week. 
Secretary James Kenney, thanks for joining us on New Mexico in Focus today. The New Mexico Environment Department handles lots of different issues all across the state, but today we're talking about PFAS, toxic human-made chemicals that the military has found at its bases across the nation and across the world, um, including here in New Mexico at Holloman and Cannon Air Force bases. Can we start, can you kind of just explain to us what PFAS is? and why it's a problem. Sure, and thank you for having me today. Um, so PFAS, which we can use the acronym, but it stands for per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances, which is a mouthful. Um, but those substances are chemicals that are man-made that have been used since about the 1950s or 60s in a number of applications. And most commonly, people will encounter them and know them from things like uh, Teflon, Scotchgard, those types of products. Um, many of our hiking equipment that we so love in New Mexico to get outdoors uh, that is waterproof or water resistant has those chemicals in it. Um, and they're used to repel and prevent sticking. So even um, your non-stick pans over the years have been made with PFAS chemicals. So they repel water, they repel um, you know, uh, any kind of chemicals or goo that you might get. I think of tree sap and things like that from hiking. Uh, but they repel that and when they get into the environment, those chemicals also do the same thing. They sit on top of our groundwater. Um, they sit in surface waters. They don't mix very well um, because they're resistant to water. So that's when they get into the, into the environment that they're persistent, and that's a word we often use to talk about PFAS. And so what are some of the health problems that are associated with them? So broadly speaking, some of the health problems, you know, when PFAS gets into you, it bioaccumulates or stays in you for a long period of time. And when it's in you for a while and it doesn't break down, that's when the health effects start to manifest. And these are documented and studied uh, health impacts. Things like um, uh, increased levels of cholesterol. So that may be something that somebody who's been exposed to PFAS would experience, as well as um, a number of uh, cancers can be caused by PFAS exposure. Um, and then there's a lot of developmental issues in terms of low infant birth weights and, and just developmental issues in children who are exposed at a young age. So, th so it's, it's a full range of health impacts. So the problems at Cannon Air Force Base were kind of found before you became secretary, but I was wondering if we could start with Cannon Air Force Base and, and what you have learned has happened there, is happening there, and what the problems are with PFAS. Sure, so um, the, the, another use of PFAS chemicals is what we call um, aqueous firefighting foams, or AFFF, uh, as, as people refer to them as, and those foams are used for um, fire suppression and fire mitigation, so uh, it's not uncommon to see those foams being used at places like military installations. Um, they were used for a number of years, and through the management of those chemicals, through training exercises, or through real fires that needed to be suppressed, um, those foams got into the environment and moved into the groundwater. So it was about uh, a few months before I became cabinet secretary that, uh, that the Air Force had 
told the New Mexico Environment Department after some years of studying that these foams were found in the groundwater. Um, since I became secretary, we've taken a very aggressive approach to make sure that those foams are, or that the impacts from the use of those foams are being managed properly and not impacting um, residents, the ag industry, groundwater, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of levels are we looking at at Canon? So um, we've done a number of, of sampling events in the area, sampling both public water supplies, um, private well waters, and the groundwater itself. And what we're seeing is that in the public water supply, we're not getting detects of, of those chemicals. In private water supplies, we are seeing some detects. And then in the groundwater itself, we've seen some astronomically high numbers, um, numbers where the, where the US Environmental Protection Agency action level is 70 parts per trillion. So just know 70 is kind of the, the, the uh, number that we're working to compare to. Some of those numbers that we're seeing in the groundwater are in the thousands, hundreds of thousands uh, times that, that, that level. So very high levels in the groundwater itself. So were people drinking that water, or were animals drinking that water? Who's been exposed to that? So that's a great question, and one we get a lot. And the, what, what we're, so there's, there's likely been exposure in the past. Um, what we're trying to do now is identify what are the possible exposure pathways, and that's why we're sampling both the public water and private well water. Um, the, and we're doing that as the state of New Mexico. Ideally, that should be done by the responsible party, in this case, that would be the US Air Force. Um, so the, the, the contamination has migrated from the groundwater into, those, into um, drinking water sources. And that's what we're trying to mitigate against. And how do you do that? Like, for example, um, there were media reports earlier this year about a dairy owner who had to euthanize his entire dairy herd of like 4,000 cows. Um, kind of how are, how are we mitigating some of these problems? So there's a, the difference is, is that in some instances, the Air Force, if, it's, if the water has been used for human consumption, the Air Force has put in some interim measures. Um, in the instance where the water is being used for the agricultural industry, uh, the agricultural industry has had to step up and incur those costs to put in those interim measures. Interim measures are things like filters, um, ways in which you, could, you can remove the PFAS chemicals before they get into the, into the cow. Um, or into the person for that matter. And um, those, are, those are expensive, and those are things that we feel as though the Air Force should take responsibility and, and work with the ag industry to make sure that the water that is used for New Mexico's ag production is safe as well. I should add that separately, we are working across our cabinet agencies, the Department of Ag, Department of Health, as well as our department, um, to have a comprehensive approach. And we are working with the ag industry to do some periodic sampling to make sure that the PFAS is, is not getting into their irrigation water. 
Okay. And then in Alamogordo with Holloman Air Force Base, that's a little bit of a different situation or what's happening there? Yeah, so um, once we found out that that there was these foams or PFAS contamination in Clovis, we also looked at what the sample results showed us in Holloman, and the numbers are again astronomically high. Um, one of the key differences is that there's Lake Holloman, which is a surface water body, and, and that lake is predominantly fed by um, the Holloman Air Force Base wastewater, so the the, the base wastewater becomes the feed water for that lake. Um, and therefore it has high levels of PFAS as well in it as well. So you have surface water contamination as well as groundwater contamination at um, Holloman Air Force Base. Uh, a, a key difference is that the water, the groundwater around Holloman is brackish, meaning it's salty. The water by Clovis, the groundwater in Clovis is more freshwater. Um, but our regulations don't distinguish between water that's usable for drinking today and water that's usable for drinking tomorrow, meaning if we desalinated that water, it'd be fresh water. So we are protecting both groundwater in Holloman and, and Cannon um, from uh, PFAS contamination. Okay, and how has the military responded? How are the state and the military working together or what's happening there? Yeah, and I. I think the easiest answer to that question is, if we were working productively, we wouldn't be involved in litigation. So soon after I became cabinet secretary and we moved into looking at how are we going to manage the situation, our first instinct is not to litigate. Our first instinct is to get controls on the ground or to start making the situation right as quickly as possible. Um, without getting into all the details as to why we litigated, I think it's quite obvious that if we're not getting the results in the time frame in, in which New Mexicans should expect the results, we're going to litigate. And that's what we did in both of these instances. Um, most recently, we filed a preliminary injunction, basically compelling the Air Force to do something. And that's where we are as of today, and we hope to um, we hope to see some action start soon uh, so that the plume is managed, the underground plume of PFAS in the groundwater is managed, and that we know we're protecting those um, drinking water wells, those private water wells, as, and uh, the, the uh, cows and ag industry. This summer, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham asked the EPA for some assistance, and the EPA responded, I believe that they could not help in the ways that she was asking. Can you talk about that a little bit and the EPA's role in all of this? Sure. Um, EPA is in the process of coming up with national drinking water standards. Um, and those standards should be, I believe the horizon for those coming out is, is sometime this uh, fall at the earliest. Um, we've asked for EPA's assistance in a legal and technical way with helping to bring the Air Force to the table and hold them accountable for what's, what's happening here in New Mexico. Um, unfortunately, the Environmental Protection Agency has said that they are um, not able to help us in a legal way. 
Uh, and as a former Environmental Protection Agency employee who had been there for 20 years, um, I would disagree with that and, and have had experience where EPA has gotten involved in within those federal to federal agency litigation. Um, it's happened over 300 times under the um, hazardous waste regulations by which we're bringing our case. So um, despite EPA not willing to come in and, and assist New Mexico in a legal manner, uh, they have offered some technical assistance, things like um, assisting us with groundwater modeling, um, and, and we're working towards that now. Uh, modeling the theoretical of where the plume is going is helpful, but showing up in Clovis, showing up in um, Alamogordo, and talking to the community, discussing risk, helping with sampling, installing um, filters, those are the things we really need help on now because as I've said many times, the Air Force isn't stepping up to do those things. And as we're wrapping up, um, what would you like people to understand who've maybe heard about this issue and um, are either worried or, or don't understand what's happening? Like, What would you like people to understand about what's happening and about the role that your department plays? So uh, it, that's a great question. and and. This is an emerging contaminant, meaning that there's a, the science is growing at the same time we're trying to solve the environmental problem. So it's not that we have a body of science that says, here's everything we know, now go out and make your regulations. We're actually doing both at the same time, and it's happening all across the country. We, we in New Mexico, to our knowledge, as I, as I know right now, the biggest contamination is caused by the U.S. Air Force, and we are working to remedy that situation. Um, people should know that we're out there in Clovis and Alamogordo test as, a, as the state. We're testing public water and private water, and folks can contact our department if they want their private well water tested. We're happy to do that. Um, but we're out there and, and we, are, we are going to remedy the situation and, and the Air Force, we hope, will step up and make it right. Beyond that, we're, gonna, we're looking at other parts of the state to see if there's a PFAS issue anywhere else. And we're working to ensure that our regulations for groundwater, surface water, and drinking water are protective and that other states, even the federal government, will look to us as, an, as, an, as, a, as a means of um, one of the more um, aggressive ways, uh, aggressive states of protecting our, our limited water supplies. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We asked the Air Force to comment on the state's request for help with the cleanup. A spokesman did not respond by our deadline for this broadcast. If we do hear something, we'll post it along with Laura's interview on our website. Now back to the line. Andy Lyman of the New Mexico Political Report wrote about the second meeting of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's working group on marijuana legislation. There's lots of talk about compromises to make recreational use a bill more palatable to those who are opposed. One thing that advocates worry will get pushed back, however, Adrian, is the medical cannabis program. Patients are very concerned about the program will fit in with this legislation. Have you seen anything so far? It's, you know, it's hard to follow you know, what's going on with this working group so far, but as it stands now, are you comfortable that the medical folks are going to be protected? 
do we still have more conversation to have here? Well, I understand uh, that mm -hmm. on Monday, the task force voted unanimously for a proposal that would um, ensure that anybody who's going to apply for a recreational license mm -hmm. um, has to guarantee that they're going to have enough of the product to be able to um, to provide for their medical uh Sound clients business, yeah. and their patients before they're able to, you know, get, get that that recreational yeah. license. So mm -hmm. I think that's a step in the right direction, mm -hmm. and um, I think that is one of the compromises that will help this mm -hmm. proposal move forward. Mm -hmm. You know, Didi, one of the things that came through in Andy's piece was the idea that you have the side that's pushing for this. But they are acknowledging the folks that are not for this are probably never going to be there, <laughs> ever. And that's fair. They, you uh -huh. know, everyone has their uh -huh. own position on these things. But you also see quotes that recreational is coming. And we have to deal with it at some yeah. level. Are you, are you concerned about the track we're on now with this working group? Is, is, it, is the makeup appropriate for you? Is it, how do you see this from the outside looking in? Well, I think there is a diverse coalition assembling. Maybe okay. not necessarily totally around this task force, although I noticed that they have the sheriff from Doñana County oh, right again. there. Right. And uh, they have a, a number of others, uh, people from smart approaches to mm -hmm. family policy, which will never be uh, uh, in favor That's of right. this. But they are getting some uh, diverse opinions. Right. And um, I think they added some members to the uh, task force, Had a too. A patient uh, member. And right. I think they're still looking for folks from business, the business community, yeah. who would be affected by legalization, yeah. which seems reasonable to me to have those folks at the table as oh, well. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the medical, I think the medical marijuana thing is a big deal. And when we, we passed medical marijuana, you know, it was a bipartisan effort. I voted for it and yeah. co-sponsored yeah. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. It was a bipartisan effort. And mm -hmm. I think this will, in the last analysis, be a bipartisan effort too. That's Maybe right. not immediately, right. but right now. Tax revenue is a big issue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing that they're talking about now is the tax uh, revenue because that plays a big part in preserving the medical marijuana program as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there are different ways of handling yes. that. So the big problem too is, I mean, like Colorado has looked at taxing you know, they pay a much lower tax for medical than you do for recreational. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, there's 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 economic ways to right. do that. Um, but we're not even talking about the real issues that are arising right now, which is, which I'm, you know, in favor of the hemp. The hemp, you look at the laws they've just passed for hemp, the THC level of the hemp they're allowed to grow is almost twice what you're allowed to grow if you're a marijuana, if you're growing marijuana for mm -hmm. medicinal or recreational p uh, purposes. Mm -hmm. But the THC guys have to separate the THC and they have right. to get rid of it. Right. And no one knows what to do with the THC yet, which is a, which which is a cleaner, purer form of THC than what these guys are growing. And it's it's overwhelmingly more powerful. Right. And so there's no, you know, and, and when, what's happening is, is right now is when you hear the state talk, their hemp guys are Department of Ag, the marijuana folks are the Department right. of Health, they don't even communicate. Yeah. Right. And so if we can't get those two to start communicating, yep. it's going to be a big problem overall. The other thing, and I'll, I'll stop, remember you got the lawsuit mm -hmm. that's been proposed by the one produced, by the one oh, right. retail guy, retail yep. guy who says you should be able to give retail, or you should be able to give recreational permits to anybody outside of New Mexico is they changed the law, right. which I believe was a, a, a statutory mistake, a, a drafting mistake, right. where it said you had to be a New Mexico resident right. to it just said, it said something else. No longer and no longer have to be a resident. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to clean up. I hope they get it cleaned up. I hope we're not last mm -hmm. to the table because this is this is an unbelievable amount of tax revenue. It's here, and we're either going to embrace it on the legal right. side right. and control it, or, 
try to control it or we're going to be completely in the black market. And speaking of that, Senator, the yes. idea that Dan brings up there, the bill that we know about this past session was to have state-run pot shops, so to speak, yes. and then it's now another bill or working idea to have another bill uh, this next session to have state not run them. Where do you come down on the idea of the state-run you know, dispensaries? My, uh, let me preface this by saying that my very greatest concern is that we don't negatively impact medical cannabis. Right. The program is incredibly important mm -hmm. and I think that it is being uh, used well. Mm -hmm. So uh, depending on how that goes is how I would be. Okay. It makes sense to me in many ways that the state would run a business but you can't tax the state. Right. So if you have private enterprises running it, then you have the tax revenue coming in. Right. I, I just want a quick thing. Representative uh, Javier Martinez mm -hmm. had in three points in his bill that I think are extremely mm -hmm. inc mm -hmm. incredible. One is to mm -hmm. reserve that licensees would have to reserve 30% of their product for medical clients. They would also be tax exempt, medical uh, products would be tax exempt, and there would be a subsidy taken out of the taxes mm -hmm. that would help low income people, uh, patients who could not afford their, their uh, cannabis. Interesting, gonna hold you there. Great night of conversation, you guys. Good stuff. Still love you, so, Gene. I love you too, Dan. I always love you. That's <laughs> all the time we have for this group on this show. Thanks, you. Thanks to you for being here. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. In case you missed it all this week, we've been sharing content on our Facebook page from Antonia Gonzalez. She's been in Iowa at the Native Issues Forum with Democratic presidential candidates. It's good watching, check it out. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.